This is Women in STEM Career and Confidence, the podcast for scientific and professional women who want to restore confidence, make meaningful impact, and balance the things and people that mean most to them. I'm Dr. Hannah Roberts, and I'll be sharing with you insights and inspiration into the mindset and skill set to help you navigate your career and lead powerfully. So welcome, Fahija. I'm really excited to have you on this end of the podcasting for once, because of course, you are the host of Monday Science and I was really happy to be interviewed by you a few months back. So now it is your turn to be in the hot seat. I know. Thank you so much, Hannah. I I mean, I'm nervous because I Oddly enough, I'm not always in the hot seat and I, I, we could, you know, delve deeper into why that is. Maybe it's an avoidance tactic on my end, <laughs> but um, I'm very excited to have this opportunity to speak with you. So thank you so much. You're welcome. So why don't we start by, actually, I'm going to go somewhere different. I'm not going to ask you to introduce yourself and do the whole career thing yet because We had a super interesting conversation as we just started to come onto the call. And I actually wish we'd recorded that part and just carried on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you asked me, you know, how are you? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I feel really good now. You're like, oh, now? And we talked about a couple of weeks ago how I'd noticed that I'd been overworking and I'd started to get like a pain in one of my right temple and when I'd gone to the folders on the computer, everything felt slow and clunky. And I knew that I was on, that was like the telltale sign that uh, I'm starting to not burn out. I think I was quite a long way from burnout, but it was like the, oh, this is the first kind of precursor steps and I'm noticing them pretty quickly. And for the first time I took this radical, I'm gonna take an emergency week off and actually nip this in the bud and it really worked. And I've never actually done that before. I always go, let's just manage the situation until the next holiday. And this was like a radical shift for me. Um, So I know you talked about having an experience like that in 2019. So I wondered if you could tell me about your experience of that. Yeah. And and again, also, thank you for sharing, because I feel like this discussion of burnout, um, especially amongst women, we, we, we just we don't really talk about it enough or share the experiences. And interestingly, as you were talking, I was remembering um, how, because at 2020, April, I had COVID. I was one of like the early ones. And also that how that has shaped how I even manage myself now. But I'll talk about 2019 in, in brief. So I think it's just one of those things where you go, go, go. And as much as you can delegate certain tasks, you still feel it start to end with you in whatever your career is, you know, whatever you're doing. And for me, um, I had, I was explaining before, I had this, I had this pain in my back and I didn't know, I'm not somebody to get back pain. I know that sounds like a thing, but I just had pain in my back and it was this continuous pain in my back. And there was so much going on with me, both professionally, personally, and things were just building up, but I had this back pain. And I went to see the doctor for the back pain. And it's interesting because, you know, as a healthcare professional myself, you know that when you see your your, uh, healthcare professional, whoever it is, when they ask you, how are you doing? (laughs) You know, you don't look good. (laughs) And so my GP GP said, so I was like, oh, hi, yeah, I've got back pain. She's like, okay, and how are you? How, How are things with you? And I was like, yeah, okay. I don't know. I think I'm fine. And then she said, okay, really, how, you know, you know how, how are things? And I, I paused in that brief second. I said, actually, I'm not okay, but I don't know what it is. If I'll be honest with you, I couldn't actually pinpoint what was wrong, but I knew that there was a physical manifestation of whatever it was as back pain. Mm-hmm. So she asked me a series of questions and I, I don't remember really what they were now, but one of the key things that had been happening to me was that I would go into work whatever time I'd get into work (laughs) and I'd go into work and then I it's almost like I blacked out for hours and then I would kind of return back and it's 3 p.m um I've got my various different tabs and windows open an abundance of emails and and then I I can't I couldn't sorry bring myself to do anything 
And so then I would be like, well, I, I know I need to rest. I need to go home, but I'm not tired. But I, I couldn't, my, I just could not put my brain in gear to physically act, to do something. So this had been going on and she said, okay, well, what are the things that might be on your mind? And I just rambled off a list of things that I didn't even realize I'd been concerned about. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and I just was talking away. You know? <laughs> and as, as we know, again, I'm not, it's not discrediting the, the health service, but we know there's this thing we joke about saying 10 minute NHS time, you know, that that's the consultation time. And I went on for a long time. So she said to me, so she was like, well, I think that there's something going on and it could be that um, we need to think about um, maybe putting you on maybe antidepressants and things like that. And I, and, and that shocked me because being, again, being a healthcare professional myself, I'm used to, you know, being the person who looks at others and, and identifies the problem mm. um, and says, oh, maybe you could consider this, this, that, and the other, but I never thought of it for myself. And um, long story cut short, I said no to the antidepressants because I, I realized that I actually didn't know what was going on. And I wanted to, even if the, the end point was, okay, I have to consider some form of um, pharmaceutical intervention, can I, what else can be done? And that's when she um, put me forward for therapy. I went for CBT therapy, which identified at the time that I was, um, it was severe anxiety, which had resulted in severe depression. I have to say, I've never actually spoken about this in a formal sense before, but I'm trying to do better to communicate my truth because I think we need to have more, um, we do need to have more conversation about this. And I guess it, I should start lead by example. And um, and so, yeah, so I had CBT, it was over, it was over quite a, a fast period of time. And it was one of the best things I've ever done. I'd never had therapy in my life at that point. I was never averse to it, but I just never had the experience. And what that, what CBT, uh, so cognitive behavioral therapy, what um that, opportunity created for me for me was to have a a series of tools to help me when I got overwhelmed when I got anxious and it, it's also that that thing in life where what's the difference between your professional personality and your personal personal personality so professionally it suits me to be an overthinker right I'm an academic I'm a researcher so oh, to, yeah. I mean yeah. sometimes I have another coaching friend who talks she's been in academia as well and talks about um academics being brains on sticks no kind of suits us to be up in our mind thinking mulling things over yeah all the it, time and, yeah and and it it serves you in your in your career I mean it's a, the debates about it but it serves you it's for me let me speak for myself it serves me or had served me to be an overthinker about a problem as it relates to my research and the group and this that, and the other and I, I would attribute that to my career successes but then in my personal life if I'm doing exactly the same thing no it was not working for me and so that's actually what I learned in that stint in that experience that oh okay I need to have better boundaries between professional behavior and personal behavior because when the two merge this is what's happened. Mm -hmm. And so with this, with the cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, I learned a series of tools to help me manage my worries. Um, and then also be able to identify the risk of relapse. Cause that was the other thing, not being able to identify when there was the potential of burnout. I, I didn't know because I, I, well, I had experienced burnout before, but <laughs> never that manifested in a physical pain. So, so that was that experience. And in all honesty, it has really shaped, I, I don't ever want to go back to that, um, how that was, it was horrible, just not feeling in control of myself, my my life, my day, my, de my de uh, destiny, sorry. But um, that, that experience and the tools that I gained from that has really influenced and impacted how I manage myself to date. Um, there's nothing like questioning your mortality to, make you really be aware of the important things in life and how you need to kind of improve things that aren't necessarily tangible it's not you know write an extra paper or have extra meetings it's things you need to put in place to improve yourself so you can do all the things that you want to do in life you know oh thank you so much for sharing that especially as I know that you like you said you haven't really 
talked about. Not at all. This is my, I, I've spoken to my friends about it. I'm amongst my, my friendship circle. I am the queen of advocacy for therapy. <laughs> so <laughs> my friends, I'm like, oh, I think. Um, so I, in my, again, you know, personally, I, I talk very open about this with my nearest and dearest, but I've never spoken about it. I, I wasn't expecting to either, but I'm very glad I did because it's the first step maybe this is also part of my own step and my own journey, but I think it's the first step of humanizing this image that people have of women in STEM, that we have it all together. We mm. do to some extent, but you know, I, I think I mentioned it before the recording actually, that my friends and I, we joke, I have quite a few um, uh, friends in, in STEM, women in STEM friends. <laughs> and every so often when we're chatting, at, even in fact, last night, one of my very close friends, she's an engineer and we were doing work at 11.30, it's not a common thing for me, but I had something that I needed to do and she was doing something. And I was like, I can't believe we're doing this. She's like, women in STEM, you know, that expectation. Yeah, like, oh, that's just how it is. Yeah, you know, we just laugh and it was an International Women's Day. It's like when so many people, oh, what is it like to be a woman in STEM? It's like tired, actually, tired. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't want to normalize that, but you know, it, it can be something that we just need to be mindful of. Yeah, but it also speaks to the generalized culture in academia and the highly competitive nature of academia that drives people to have this unmerciful kind of way of working on themselves, like almost a punishing style of working. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I remember, so I, I didn't plan on being an academic, which um, had an impact in real like imposter syndrome when I, I got my my uh, lectureship actually didn't plan on being an academic my my journey into this space was um when I was it was during my undergrad first year undergrad I I had this okay do you know Tim Westwood <laughs> I, well I know the name now I can't see his he's a DJ name. and at the time yes. this is showing my age he's a DJ and at the time when I was um a student uh, he was very a very popular DJ and he used to have this ob obnoxious bomber jacket. And for some reason, Tim, Tim Westwood was my style icon at the time. And I got this huge, like green, it was um, like a khaki green um, bomber jacket at my first year, first semester in uni. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I do actually have a miniature version of that right now, but not in the same way. It was long. So you could zip yourself up. It was essentially a sleeping bag. And so <laughs> I was at uni. I to some extent took my journey into university a bit for granted because of it was just the norm in my family to go to university um but I actually ended up doing a PhD and all those things off the back of a failure that I had in my first year so when um I, I failed a module and then I had to resit the module not the year but I had to resit the module and that was like a first big experience on for me for failure that I cared about and that actually motivated me to say I want to do a PhD as a highest form of education to challenge myself, but not with any intention of actually doing a PhD. <laughs> so, yeah, so so to now, uh, you know, sit and I'm, I'm an academic, I'm like, interesting, not, wasn't planned. And um, as I was saying, I, I remember people, like somebody in my postdoc particularly, you know, when uh, they made the decision to go into industry and not to stay in academia. And, they kept saying to me, oh, but you're well suited for academia. And I was like, oh, but you hear such negative things about academia. What are you trying to say? There might have been some subtle shade there, but I don't think so. Um, I, th I think I, she, this, this colleague was saying that she, she gets very, um, like the competitiveness, the, um, the sort of, the, just the nature and the dynamics of academia uh, proved to be quite challenging for her. Whereas I never saw it, and it's not because it's not there, but I'm in my own world, in all honesty. I think that's how I've survived because I know that there's competition, but I compete with myself. So I'm actually harder on myself probably than thinking, oh, my colleague is doing this and doing that. But it takes a lot. And I think I, I had a certain level of that starting my lectureship, but then the last, I've been a lecturer now for five years and the last five years has really had to learn a lot about myself and how to cope and work in this space. It's, it's quite a challenge, but I'm happy. <laughs> End with the positive. I am happy. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm fine. No, I am happy, but um, it's, a, it's difficult. It is difficult to navigate in this space. 
It is super difficult. And thank you for explaining that and how for you it's not. So we're all affected by the external culture of where we're at. And that happens, like you said, quite a lot subconsciously rather than consciously. But you seem to uh, sort of create a lot of internal pressure for yourself. And this kind of fear of failure in a way has driven many of your great successes in life as well. Yes, definitely. And we, um, so in the work that I do, we often talk about this in terms of our different selves or our different parts of us. So what I was really hearing there for everyone who's listening was a really strong pusher, that part of you that really has that really long to-do list, that drive, that focus, that, you know, must get things done, can't stop. Um, Even if you did stop, you're still thinking about it, um, that kind of part of you. So it kind of makes sense that, um like back then in 2019 that was the route to yes burnout kind of thing definitely and I just want to add and it's you've you've created clarity for me even by summarizing you've summarized me in such a good way but um I would say that what changed with that 2019 incident and then more recently well it was only about a year apart really because then as I mentioned 2020 COVID completely ill couldn't communicate couldn't do anything it was it was really bad um and it was I remember waking up on my 20 no on my birthday sorry I was going to say my 25th birthday I am not 25 (laughs) (laughs) I am not on my birthday um because I was ill in that week and I was very grateful to be alive but more importantly I was like right that drive that I have I need to add self-care into that drive Mm -hmm. so when I have my to-do list, when I have my scheduling, like I I add, I have like a a morning routine that I have to do because it sets me up for the day. And I need that as a reminder for whatever the day may bring, because, you know, I I keep talking about emails because I really don't like emails. (laughs) I remember I listened to a podcast where someone said emails is somebody else's to-do list. And it's true. But anyway, this is, this, this discussion is not about emails, but, um, but it's something that is a problem for me. I don't like them. <laughs> but um, it's just remembering that you don't know what your day holds. So I'm a firm believer in how you start your day and the tools and the things that you put into the start of your day can help you in the moments where your day may be a little bit chaotic and it just allows you to center yourself. So I'm very much into meditation, um, you know, mindfulness fitness, anything that I can do to ground me. I mean, for example, yesterday, um, stuff happened. <laughs> and I got very frustrated and I could have sat there and continued the back and forth communication <laughs> that was going on. And I just said, no, I'm going to go to the gym. And I went to the gym, felt great afterwards. And I wouldn't have done that normally. I would have been like, no, I've got to see this through. Nah, yeah, I have to prioritize myself. Yeah. That's so interesting. You talk about that morning routine as being really important now. And it's something that I also implemented because I used to start my day with the, I've got to make the kids pack lunches and sort all the washing and do the thing. And I would sit down to work and I'd be already in a bit of a like funk. And like, yeah. I have to do all yeah. this stuff before I even get to the desk, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And actually when I made that big shift and I prioritized myself first and I get an hour every morning, half six to half seven, every morning um Monday Wednesday Friday I can actually leave the house yeah Tuesday Thursday I have to do it at home because obviously we have yeah. three kids so we have to yes this, of course this event um and I just go out and sometimes it's a walk and a podcast sometimes I go swimming and I record a like mini podcast like yeah podcasts for me are a way to kind of get my own thoughts like 100%. a processing thing 100% yeah um I do all kinds of things but it really makes such a huge difference and I have um, my momentum app where the, my clients actually come in and we do a little post an accountability post what was your morning routine every day nice. just put a little post in there and it I see everyone's and they're like oh this morning I went for a walk and this is my picture of my walk this morning and they're like yeah ready to start the day amazing I need to join your app I need to join this community I, I've attended a couple of your sessions and loved it but I, I the morning routine you know I didn't I, I didn't understand prior to being consistent I didn't understand the value of showing up for yourself as the first thing you do when you wake up that's essentially what yeah. you're doing 
in the morning if you, you when you carve out that time and it can be whatever it needs to be five minutes 10 minutes but it's almost it's you are showing up for yourself you're being accountable to yourself and it really does set you up and I think also people naturally when they get up it's like oh okay ugh, I've got to do this I've got to do that if you just pause for a minute literally and then just Ta-da! I present myself to the world in the best way that I possibly can. I think that's, it's really good. It's very good. It's fantastic. And, you know, when we talked about the pusher parts earlier, there's always an equal opposite of the pusher. So the opposite of the pusher is like a more being self, like basically a couch potato. And people worry that if they stop, I'll never be able to get off the sofa again. But actually just allowing even a tiny percentage of that part to come out in a not in a controlled way but in a planned way allows for us not to get overrun by that part in a whole burnout episode where it just takes over completely and then you have no access to your pusher because they're all I mean if we didn't have our pusher we'd never get anything done so so true it's about a rebalancing of the parts and not allowing one to take over completely I mean so true I schedule in like sofa time (laughs) for myself (laughs) um definitely and also in in my case I don't have any children yet but it's something in the future and I I have a couple of close friends who have kids and they talked to me a lot about enjoying this time you know when you can say I am going to take myself out for brunch on a Saturday (laughs) because when the children come, it might not be in the same way. It's not to make it sound like a burden, of course. It's just that value being appreciative of where you are right now. And then so you can prepare for the joys of the next phase. And that's actually, a, I had a coaching session about that um, pre- preparation as, um, it was actually very specific preparation as a woman in STEM, um, thinking about your research and everything and that next phase and that next step of starting a family and the things that you're doing in your current life to appreciate your current life but in also preparation for the next phase oh what a beautiful coaching session that sounds it amazing was. <laughs> like, it solved all my life problems I was like wow <laughs> can I keep you forever <laughs> <laughs> so as we've been talking you've also mentioned about some of the actual um enjoyment that you have in STEM for the work that you're doing and also some of the issues as well so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your research group, what you're doing, um, first of all. Thank you. Yeah, so my research, I mean, it's amazing being able to say I have a research group. So uh, the research... I thank you so much. I have five PhD researchers by the 1st of June. It's very interesting. Wow. Yeah, I had three up till obviously 1st of June and then two more starting plus a research assistant. Um so my group, the, the Rhyme Abraham group, I couldn't think of a fancy name. You know, some people are like, ooh, the nano, the, I, I just use my name. I just, that was the, that was the most innovation. I, I think that works. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so it's been a journey, but essentially what we're focusing on is pharmaceutical challenges in infectious diseases. And this was prior to COVID. I keep telling people this, so they, they don't feel that we jumped on the bandwagon. Um, but my interest has been uh, in malaria specifically, actually, because of the pharmaceutical challenges of the parasite and how the parasite gets into the body and, and you know, things that we can look at there. And then this extended into um, sort of tuberculosis and general infectious diseases in general. So how we look at this, uh, three main ways. So firstly, trying to create in vitro models, um, non-animal based models, so cell culture models um, that can be used for infectious diseases, more specifically with 3D cell culture as well. Um, So we'd look at making scaffolds and ways to improve the biomimicry of these systems. Then secondly, um, a nanotechnology approach where we're looking at sustainable means to generate these what we call metallo drugs. So these are um, metallic based um, drug delivery systems. And the reason for that is because they have potential to be used simultaneously as therapeutic agents and diagnostic agents. And then the last arm of my work is a little bit different. It's looking at advocacy and awareness approaches around infectious diseases. So 
Um, we saw a lot of this in COVID, but a lot of anti-infectives, antibacterial, um, anti-malarial agents, they are quite prone to be falsified. So created as fake medicines because there's a, a large um, uh, money, financial benefit to criminals to falsify medicines. And um, I wanted to have an advocacy and awareness on because by nature, I, I am that sort of person where I'm like, right, what can we do to solve this problem? And I felt that I was quite well placed um, um, to sort of add support into this area. So working with different stakeholders, we look at how can we um, raise awareness about the global issue of fake medicines? What can we do in terms of action to um, try and solve this global issue? It's been going on for years. So that's the the ins and out of the of the work that we do. Um, and I have, as I mentioned, now five <clears throat> sorry, now five PhD researchers and a research assistant. And I'm always so grateful that they chose me as their supervisor. I'm like, thank you guys. <laughs> thank oh. you so much. Uh, it's, it's, it's such an honor to be a supervisor. It's an honor to support young talent and emerging talent to achieve something that means so much to them, um, to challenge them as well, but within a supportive space, because I didn't necessarily have that during my PhD and my journey. And I, I think instead of taking the negative experiences I had and then passing that on, I've actually evaluated what I didn't like, what didn't work for me and created what I, what I like to think. And to be, I feel my PhD researchers would agree because it's, we've got very open communication. They tell me sometimes, oh, that didn't work for us. I'm like, okay, thanks. Um, I so love I, that though, yeah, that I, they feel that they're able to feedback to you yeah, yeah, definitely, it's definitely. Good work that that's huge. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, because I so I, it's been a journey actually. I started my research group 2017, and it was n equals one, aka me. <laughs> and, well, it has um, to start with n equals one. Thank you, thank you. Um, so I was I was the group leader and everything. But when I started to get people coming into my group, I had my first PhD re researcher. I think 2018. Um, and we had an incident with um, some students that came into the lab where there was bullying, there was this, it was a, a bit of a mess. And I, I thank goodness for mentorship. I had a senior colleague who mentored me and supported me in handling the situation. And I was so upset because A, to have a bullying situation that I'm having in, a, in my group where somebody has come in and has affected our ecosystem because as a, so it was n equals two now me and my <laughs> my new phd research and i had a i think i had a research assistant at the time so external people came in and i realized that because i didn't have any values i know my values and the other two that were core members of my group had their, they tapped in we were very similar aligned you know honesty integrity um, respect but i realized that I'm going to be having an influx of people who are coming into my group every so often or who want to work with me. How do I create a sort of default statement to let them know what my values are without me having to explain it? So I realized that I needed to create a mission statement and I created a mission statement um, where I put in there what my values are. Um, and, and actually the values are linked to um quotes because I, I love a quote Ooh, um, I never thought about that yeah quotes before. yeah I've I've linked them to quotes three quotes and um and then you know put in there what the core things are honesty integrity respect then also communication and and with the communication it's to highlight that everybody's um everybody's opinion is valid and valuable so we create an open space we, we, I suppose I should say, I create, I have created an open space where anybody can talk from MSc, from undergrad to PhD. And the reason why I did that is because um, ideas can come from anyone and anywhere. Knowledge, innovation, and I don't even mean research-wise, even ways to optimize our lab, <laughs> you know, just give us advice. Um, so, so yeah, so that that's why I set up the mission. I, I actually did the mission statement. And since then, um, when I give an induction to anyone into the group and when I, I work with um, collaborators, I just draw them. I'm like, oh, FYI, here's the mission statement. Um, and I found that that has created a very nice, very nice working environment, not just for me, but for my researchers. 
everybody comes in with an understanding that you know this these these are the the rules you know and the rules are actually there to help and benefit everyone uh, to create a good working environment not just that but it's also helping to create alignment of people exactly who exactly. are a good fit and a good match for you as well and yeah. it sounds like you've created a really deep level of psychological safety oh thank you everybody of every um i don't want to call it hierarchy because that's what i want to get away from but everyone at yeah. every level feels yeah. able to contribute and one of the things that i see the most in academia is because when you go in as an undergraduate and you get your um tutor or your supervisor you're going from that i've had my mum and dad and now suddenly i've got this tutor and it's almost like they're the substitute yes and, and oh. Yes. And we default into that child and then we make that transition to MSc, PhD, and we continue to have that parent-child sometimes relationship. I, I mean, I certainly did. And we forget that we're colleague to colleague, adult to adult. And actually you providing that psychology, psychological safety allows them to step up and for us to not default into the, I call them bonding patterns, but these like weird interactions that are not productive. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you've articulated it so well. So it's very interesting because I think that as an observer of academia, <laughs> ignore that I'm <laughs> academic, as an observer of academia, I think that one of the challenges um, or the issues, sorry, in, in academia can be lack of boundary setting and understanding as well as um, not having clear guidance, even though they're, they're, it's there, but clear guidance and how to implement things like boundary setting and, and, and things like that. So you touched on something very interesting, which is this parent risk of parent-child relationship as a supervisor, as a lecturer. Um, and I, for me, I think it's very important to be very clear. It's not, it's not to try it, I'm, you know, I was about to say I'm very nice well I don't know subject to interpretation but I think for me and, and it's interesting because I had some people who misinterpreted my my approachable style as oh I'm being too friendly with students or I'm being too open and I was like no because I still set boundaries but I think that you have to be approachable but you also have to be professional and be very clear and explain to the undergrad explain to your PhD researchers your role as your as their supervisor your role as their personal tutor and also their role as a student and I I'm very aware of when sometimes boundaries can be crossed I have had instances where um, students did sort of project a parent type figure to me because there are situations you know people come to university coming from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of vulnerabilities and it sometimes for them having a personal tutor is the first time they've had an adult invest in aspects of any aspect of their life. And so it can be um, for them a sort of, oh my gosh, thank you for caring about me and then care about all other aspects of my life. Yeah. And you, me, you know, I have to highlight, well, I care about my ultimate aim is to sit on the graduation you know, platform and table whenever you graduate and clap. And yes, I know about your journey to get there, but I'm just gonna be like, you made it. That's my role. Ultimately, I care about you graduating. Whatever we need to do to get you there, I will do that within my capacity, but I may not always be the person. I might need to signpost you to the counseling, might need to signpost you for carers, you know, support. Um, but that dynamic is, is so interesting because it, it's at every level. And the way I will interact with an undergraduate versus an MSc versus a PhD research versus a postdoc, it's very different. But the core thing is the boundary setting. For them, for me, um, you know, I'll just give an example. So I keep mentioning I'm a healthcare professional. I studied pharmacy first before doing my PhD. And with pharmacy, which is a four-year degree, 
Um, and then you have your fifth year in uh, practice, although now some of it is integrated, but essentially you have your fifth year in practice. And I did mine at Geyser and St. Thomas's and also um, Southwark Peace Primary Care Trust, which is now a clinical commissioning group. And when I was uh, on one of my rotations, ward rotations, cardiovascular was a very, I was very, I, it's an interesting topic to me. It's interesting that I didn't do that for my research, but it's, it's always been a topic that I find very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I just had a moment there. Um, but at the time about um, a, so that would have been 2008, 2007, my grandmother unfortunately had um, a heart, heart bypass, heart surgery, open heart surgery, all this stuff. So to then also be doing something like my rotation in the cardiovascular ward had meaning, but then also there was a risk of me getting emotionally attached. And there was a patient that um, had had some surgery. I was fine up until this patient that had had surgery and she just reminded me of my grandmother. She was an elderly lady and she didn't seem to have any family nearby. So I just was like, every time I was like, okay, is she okay? Did I? And I remember my tutor said to me, okay, this is it's nice that you care, but you're doing too much now. You need to set boundaries, you know? And I always remember that, that, okay, it's okay to care, but you still have to have some level of boundaries because I was getting very emotional. I was crying. I was worried about her. Yeah, I, I got wow. so into it. I was so worried, you know? And, and that was a real lesson in professional, I guess, would you call it maybe professional empathy? Like you can be empathetic, you can be sympathetic, but you, you can't let that get in the way of you doing like what you need to do for that person right yeah, so I suppose it's you can't take it on as a responsibility this is it exactly yeah. and and so being able to but you and also you still then need to be able to help the person and that's the approach I take with um supervision with you know being a personal tutor a lecturer and all that that I care I do very very much care actually <laughs> Um, but I, I need to channel that care into something productive that benefits the student, you know, so I need to be mindful that it's them, they're the priority, I need to prioritize them, but I also need to prioritize myself so I don't get so emotionally invested that I can't do my job, which is a disservice for them. Do you see what I mean? Does that? Does that Absolutely. So I like to think of it like a tennis court. So if we get into that parent-child thing, it's like you're batting the ball back and forth. And in a way, the, the one who's in the child role um, kind of gives their vulnerability for the other person to manage. And actually, the adult does the same, the same thing in that particular role. We, they give it to each other. And then you're locked in this bonding pattern or this kind of back and forth between the two. And ultimately, that vulnerability is going to get stepped on at some point, and it's going to result in fireworks of some kind or upset and hurt. Yeah, And actually the boundary setting is basically saying, I've just put the bat down and I've walked off the court and the other person can't play if the other person isn't playing. Yes. So yeah. actually one person can change the whole dynamic. It doesn't actually have to come um, from both parties. You just, you do that by default in and of, of itself, just doing that yourself. So I think you've done a really excellent job. Thank you. Actually, Thank and it's you. so refreshing to hear someone actually understand why it's so important and what impact it has, not just on yourself, but on other people too. Thank you so much. I, that really means a lot because um, in fact, I don't think anyone's ever thanked me in that capacity. So thank you. I really appreciate that praise. So thank you for that. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 not that one does it for praise and thanks, but you know, you do wonder, oh, I hope I'm, hope I'm doing the right thing. And then I have moments where, especially with like my PhD researchers, when I see them like giving other people advice and the confidence they have, I'm like, oh, go on. And I do say, well yeah. done. I'm, I'm the embarrassing supervisor who always wants to attend all the things they're doing to support. And to a point where <laughs> one, of my, one, of my, um, one of my PhD researchers, um, there was something that was meant to happen. I was like, oh, okay, what, what day, you know, what day is it? And he was like, oh, don't speak visitors aren't allowed, like supervisors aren't allowed. I was like, why not? And I was like, but you know, okay, so I'm not allowed. He was like, no. I was like, okay, all right. And so they sometimes say, oh, I'm doing this, but it's actually oh, a cloak. I'm like, oh, that's so sad, <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, no, thank you so much for that. It's, it's as I said, it's, I do, these are the aspects of my, my role and my job and of academia that I do enjoy. 
the mentorship, the, the growth, the seeing people grow and supporting them. And then of course the science, I mean, the science is just, it's so exciting. It's all very exciting. Um, and so moments where the parts of academia that I don't enjoy overtakes, I have to ground myself and remind myself of, okay, this is, cause that's one thing with academia. Most of the time, the things that you don't like, it's only temporary. Um, you can have, you know, if it's sort of high admin load or exam load, it's usually temporary in my experience. Oh, maybe it's how I cope. I don't know. There's, there is something about that. <laughs> maybe it's how I cope. No, I mean, I say this to people a lot. I think it's the, what's going on right now and the refocusing back to the big picture. Is the big picture I'm marking and it's over in two weeks? Is the big picture that actually this has been going on for two years and it's going to continue to go on? Like, just what is the big picture? And yeah, I mean, that. you know, whilst we're whilst I'm really bearing it all um, I had a moment last year <laughs> when I was like well I think a lot of people I mean I've had to pull back a little bit from Twitter at the moment just because from really over the pandemic all you've seen is either a lot of people not enjoying academia just hating everything whether it's the teaching aspect the research aspect um, and then some really high profile names leaving academia to go to industry, to go to other environments. And I, I've had my moments um, and last year because I got COVID again and that, that sent me into a bit of a, what is happening? It was just, it was, a, it was very down. And um, I then thought, okay, am I doing, am I really doing what I should be doing there's that sort of life purpose question which I'm constantly asking myself I just want to I always just hope that I am doing what my what is my life purpose and making a difference that's ultimately what I hope for um and then there was a question of am I in the right environment and the right space to do whatever that is you know and I I I'm not in doubt that I should be somebody who is a creative I believe that as an academic you are a creative it's just a different type of create creativity so I believe that I should be a creative within, um, within the sciences. Um, the question I was asking myself is, should I be doing that as part of an institute or should I try and find a way to do that on my own? And these are still, it's still, the answer is coming. It has come and I'm working on several different things to achieve what I ultimately want, but it's, it's challenging, it is challenging. It is, and that question of life purpose and what's next, um, is a question for many people, if not everyone on the yeah. planet at some point we question that because you talked about, oh, it just, academia just kind of happened to me, like that unconscious unfolding of things up until the point where, and I think the pandemic kind of crystallized this for a lot of people. Oh, actually, where did I make those choices? And are they still the choices that I want to make moving forward? How can I make the biggest impact in the world? Um, I had that moment myself when my dad had a huge heart attack and it did leave me questioning, like, if I was to die today, what real tangible difference have I made? That was yeah. kind of the, the start of making that switch into coaching for me, asking the big questions. It's why I like, like a sort of model for life purpose. So I think your passions or your purpose lies in the past. The answers lie in the past and actually you create themes from your past, whether that's personal, professional things that happen that always stay the same. The I present is around the mission. This is the current what I'm doing to express my purpose and my passions in life. And for me, that should be um, around your natural talents and capabilities. You talked about being a creative and the values that you hold as a person. And then out there in the future is the vision. That's the where I'm heading and that's the navigational piece. And I like to use um, the 17 global goals for sustainability as a way, a framework for people to go, pick one for the heart, one for the head. And what do I personally see at the intersection between the two? Like, what's my take on that? And the idea is that we can't affect the past, but we can affect the present. That's why we have our power. And we can keep taking incremental shifts and changes as long as it's taking us closer and closer to that vision. Um, and it's, it's those things like some people have car accidents and they wake up and go, this is my life purpose. But for the rest of us, there are actually tools and exercises we can take to figure this stuff out. Um, and once you do, it kind of is life changing. It, it really does help. 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Again, I mean, I feel, are you psychic? Do you have psychic abilities? <laughs> because, you know, so as I, mentioned, I had, I know, <laughs> um, I had, so it, actually, I'm only even just really piecing it together. 2019, I had the sort of burnout experience. 2020, I had COVID, which then allowed a different level of you know, the mortality, yeah. what's the meaning to life? What am I doing? 2021, um, <laughs> COVID again. Um, but thankfully, because I was vaccinated, sorry, this is not a plug for vaccination, but because I was vaccinated, um, the symptoms were less. So I, I was actually better. It's just if my mood was really low. But actually, it was again a reminder for me. It's like, am I doing, am I be, to be honest, what the real question actually I asked myself was, am I being my authentic self? That's actually the question that I, I asked myself. And and when look at my chair, I told you my chair was going to. Be <laughs> we knew this would happen. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I have a dodgy chair that keeps. Anyway, it's amusing. But um, no, the question. So for me, last year, the question was, "Am I being my authentic self?" And if I go back to what I said at the start of our discussion, which was the imposter syndrome, you know, one of the reasons why I feel a lot of people end up leaving academia or um deciding it's not for them is because they say oh I don't I'm not an academic because they look at a stereotypical I don't know what they think an academic should be and they don't see a place for themselves in there I was filling out an application form for something it's not a job it's not an exclusive that I'm leaving (laughs) but I was (laughs) after everything I've said I filled out an application for for something and um and I had to actually I I had to highlight the statistics for black people, black academics, which was like 0.7% in the UK of professors. And it's crazy. And then also black female academics, right? And um, and, and I I do feel that, um, not all the time, actually, I don't feel, because I'm not, you know, it's not, it's not, when, when people ask actually, what is it like being, a black woman in academia because unless something happens you're like oh wait hold on you know like when people make assumptions about you in certain ways and confidence there's a lot but um one of the things is understanding that do you know what in my experience what I decided to do after my sort of big feeling of imposter syndrome it's like I'm going to just be myself whatever that is but sometimes you forget to be yourself because you're conforming right? You're like, oh, I don't know if people will accept me in this way that I'm being. And so for me last year, um, I decided that I'm going to be my authentic self. It's okay if not everybody understands, but you know what? I understand. And it might mean that, um, it might mean that I'm having to do things in a different way, but actually if I shape my research outputs, my everything that I'm doing around my core strengths and my authentic self. So you know, I did a, a segment with the BBC, part of their series about fake medicines and stuff. That's just because I, I like to talk, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I, it's good that I like to talk and I can make some sense at times, but, you know, really just honing into everything that you're saying, like honing into your passions, your core self, and using that as a way to propel forward. But I, I would say just because I was thinking about this, it was, oh, sorry, it was a Sunday that I did this application and it was like, what are you what is something that not everybody is able to do in your peer category that you're proud of and that you've achieved? And I was like, I, I was thinking of other things. And I was like, actually, when I think about it, because the stats for black academics is so poor and I'm not professor yet, you know, I'm, I'm trying, but I'm not professor yet. But even just staying in academia, I think I'm taking the box and at least just trying to show that it is possible, but it's hard is hard but it is possible it is hard and it makes such a difference if you can see it you can be it and you're almost trailblazing that pathway for others thank you what I heard in all of that though was if your life's purpose was to be your true authentic self what would the expression of that look like in the world um that's the big question yeah, um, it's it's a big question that I've, I think for me, 
the answer to that, and I'm still unraveling the answer, if I'll be honest, because I've only just asked myself that a year ago. <laughs> so I've got a lot of catching up to do. But <laughs> I, I would say that what I'm understanding so far about being my authentic self is, um, I've forgotten the name of the book. I think I even quoted it in your in your interview, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Oh, yeah. Susan Jeffers, I think it is. Susan Jeffers. Yes. Um, and I would say that what I'm learning is to understand what your natural gifts are, what my natural gifts are. I've identified for me is communication, um, mentorship, bringing people together. That is something that I, and people ask me, I've had companies like, I was, oh, could we do this? Yeah, sure. I, I like bringing people together. It doesn't have to be about me. It doesn't have to be about my work. But if I can bring people together for impact, for something to make a difference, that makes me happy. So I'm working on actually how can I use those natural gifts to make a difference in the niche that I've carved myself out into, which is infectious diseases, more specifically malaria TB. Mm-hmm. How can I bring all that I am into making a difference in these two areas and I had to focus that was one thing actually because my authentic self is a bit scattergun I love everything I I could if you just even that as we're talking about cardiovascular I'm like oh I should go back to that but (laughs) that's part of my problem and that's where I have to say I had to be a bit disciplined with myself to say I can't solve all the world's problems but I if I can channel my gifts my energy my my authentic self into a specific area, then I could actually make a lot of impact in that space. And that's actually what I started doing from last year. And I can see the difference already. It's actually, it's quite interesting how things move quickly when you're doing, I don't want to say when you're doing the thing you're meant to be doing, because you, you never really know. But I, I, I've noticed that things are moving in the right direction quick, in a, in a, a good, at a good pace towards meaningful impact in patient care, patient outputs and improving patients' lives for me, based on me just being myself. Yeah, and we also get better results. Yes. The byproduct when we're living life on purpose in alignment to all that we've talked about today. So I wanted to thank you so much for bringing your whole self to today. And really unpacking everything that has brought you to this point in terms of the burnout, the psychological safety and your vision for the impact you want to create in the world. So thank you so much for today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women in STEM Career and Confidence. To get further support in your journey, join me in Breakthrough Unleashed on Facebook.